Hey everyone, welcome to Detoxicity, a podcast in which men share their stories. Whether this is your first time checking this podcast out or you're a regular listener, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy. My name is Mike Joseph. Detoxicity is available on just about every podcast platform there is, and I hope that however you listen, you take a minute to subscribe and drop a rating and or a comment. If you feel the need to check me out on social media, you can go to facebook.com slash detoxpod or follow me on Instagram at it's Mike Joseph. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I can be found there at tis Mike Joseph. Finally, there's a DetoxPod newsletter. You can find the link to sign up at tinyurl.com slash DetoxPod. You can even email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Feel free to drop a line and make suggestions or provide constructive criticism. And also, don't hesitate to reach out should you want to be on the podcast or you know someone who'd be a good fit. Ralph Jackadine has four decades of working in the music business with artists as diverse as Bruce Springsteen, Rush, Kiss, Livingston Taylor, Martin Sexton, and Ellis Paul. He, he began promoting concerts in his hometown of Allentown, Pennsylvania, and at the University of Notre Dame. Then, after a career in commercial real estate, he started an indie record label and artist management company. He is the founder of the Boston Managers Group, a 150-plus strong professional organization. Ralph also teaches full-time on the faculty of Berklee College of Music in the Music Business Management Department. This episode finds me and Ralph exploring teaching and mentorship, the things Ralph learned from the church, Mother Teresa and Bruce Springsteen, and the things that he tries to pass along to his students and his children. We also talk about the stresses involved with managing artists' careers and how to keep the faith in uncertain times like these. Everybody, please welcome Ralph Jackadine. I'm Ralph Jackadine, and I'm originally from Allentown, Pennsylvania. And then ended up here in the Boston area. I am talking to you in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I have 40 years in the music business, maybe a little bit more than that. 40 years, two kids, Evan, who is 24, and Luca, who I think is 23. It changes every year. You know, it's hard to keep track. You <laughs> have to keep track. <laughs> and since 2013, I've been teaching at the Berkeley College of Music, and I'm full-time there, and I also run Ralph Jackety's Management. I've been managing artists for a whole bunch of years. So I, I do the management, and I do all that stuff, and I go to Berkeley, and I talk about what I do for my day job, and I absolutely love it. So that's, that's and that's how we kind of met years ago, Mike, Indeed one way is. or another. And yeah, I was so impressed with you and your story that almost every year I bring you into Berkeley. And it's it's a it's a powerful time when my students get a little bit of Mike Joseph in there. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. I, I feel like in a way, me talking to your students every every year sort of was part of what led to me doing this because it got me comfortable asking questions and talking to people and being interested in hearing people's stories. So I mean, when you bring me up there, I always end up feeling super energized just, just for the fact that I'm able to kind of interact with younger people in a way that I don't do on a regular basis and um, kind of just get a little taste of where they're coming from and, you know, kind of look at my own life. And when I was that age and what, you know, how nice it would have been to have had somebody like me come in and talk to younger me about the things yeah. that they should look forward to in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And that's, that's exactly my take on it too. I, 
I know what life was like at 20, 21, 23, you know, 19 to 23 years old. And what I did know and what I didn't know, what I thought I knew. And just like what you said, I, I wish someone told me about this. And the thing about you coming into Berkeley is every, every single time you come, I, I know your story. And then you expand on the story every single time. And I usually like to divide half my class. You have the cred in the music business, right? Of what you do and the artists you work with and where you come from. And, and that's all great. But I like that about half the class. And the other half of the class is real. So they, they, you get the credibility, you tell your story, and it's a music business story. And it's fantastic. And then you get to the real stuff. Right. And then all of a sudden, like people sit up and they start listening and they go, wow, because you're honest and transparent. And boy, didn't we want that when we were 20 years old of somebody saying, hey, let me tell you about me and yeah. what's going on and what, how I got through this. Yeah. And that's, that's why I love you and I love your mission that you're on. Yeah. Thank you, Ralph. So were you always, was it always a dream of yours to work in music? Because you've basically dedicated your life to it. Yeah, one way or another, right? You know, music's the thing that always got me inspired, energized, and soothed, you know? I remember when I was in grade school, there's a kid in our uh, high school that was killed in a car accident. And at the funeral, they played a Genesis song called Ripples. And I didn't know why that stuck with me. And then when I heard that song, I just pictured this, you know, 17-year-old kid. And I pictured, like, what this song does to the people in an audience. And music's always been there for me in a, in a pretty profound way. And for me, it's spirit it, and it's spiritual. I'm 61 years old, and I, I tell my students at Berkeley that I don't know anything more profound as a force on this planet than music. And music is very connected to love and it's very connected to spirituality and it's very connected to all these amazing things that make people want to live another day or forgive somebody I agree. or run a, run a marathon or something. So, you know, when I, I, I remember when I was on, geez, it was uh, you know, junior high school, I was, I got myself a little Epiphone guitar and then I had two friends named Connie Patty and we started, and they were amazing, like folk singers and all. And they played the, the 530 folk mass at St. Thomas More in Allentown. And, and they kind of brought me in and I didn't know how to do much of anything. I could strum a couple chords and I had these beautiful, talented women and then me in the middle trying to, trying to mouth words and not be heard. But we played the 530 folk mass and, you know, that was great. And little do I know, there was five, six, seven hundred people every single time. And, you know, if five, six, seven hundred people seen an artist, that's a successful career. Hell yes, it is. So that's kind of how I started out, mouthing words to, to a church full of people. And, and then I just wanted to play. So in Allentown, there's no place to play in, until you're of drinking age, which was 21. So I used to go to a place called Godfrey Daniels, and I, it was a coffee house. And, you know, they play folk music. And for me, folk was the F word. So I, <laughs> I wouldn't tell people I was, you know, I would talk about Rush and Kiss and Farner and Fogat. And then I would sneak into the Godfrey Daniels place and I'd see these men and women with a guitar. 
and their ability to move an audience and tell a story to move me blew me away. So then I started to play the open mics. And then now I knew what an open mic was. I started an open mic in my church. And that kind of got me like promoting and thinking about things. And that, so that was my start. So really early on, I move, music moved me. And I, I zip around Boston with Sirius XM on, and I have a, a 60 station. And I can, there's songs from 19, you know, when I was five, six, seven years old, those songs from those times, like the mid 60s, I, I know every word. And I could picture the YMCA and the cool kids playing pin, pinball or ping pong or basketball, and they would be listening to this music. And so really early on, I was, I was hooked with music. So uh, it's, it's an absolute thrill to spend a good deal of my life involved in music in some capacity. Isn't it amazing to hear a song and immediately be transported back to like a place in time, a smell, like uh, uh, yeah. it's almost like teleportation. Like it just right. puts you back in a particular mood. And, you know, you can think of like, I, there are songs I can hear and I can think of my grandmother's house and picture the whole like uh, uh, room where the record player was. And, and it's amazing that music can jog those sort of memories in people. Like just hearing a minute of a song. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's the power of music. And then I remember I was, it was in 1981. I was, I was the concert director at the University of Notre Dame. And my last show I did was Bruce Springsteen during the River Tour. And, you know, this is like, this is a day that kind of changed a lot of my life in, in that fact. Like growing up in Allentown, Springsteen was, was, you know, the God that he is today. And in the river came out and that was a, a number one record around the world. And we got him at Notre Dame. And I remember I got to spend the day with him. Oh, wow. And this is like, you know, meeting, meeting my guy. And he was with Barry Bell, his booking agent. And I got a, you know, a Notre Dame football jersey, one that says Bell and one that says Springsteen. And they were real Notre Dame jerseys. And I guess they do that for celebrities and all. So, so I, was, I was there to hand them jerseys, which is a good thing. That's how you kind of make friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I just got to spend the whole day with, with, with Bruce. And the thing that really got me is, you know, when there's 14,000 people and everybody's standing on their feet and the house lights go off and you could see the band on the stage. And I, I was right next to, there was five steps to go run up the stage and I was next to Springsteen. It was just like a little area behind these, behind the big amplifiers and in, in, in the sound system. And Bruce was like ducking down. He has a guitar on. He was ready to run on the stage. And the whole place was saying Bruce and shouting Bruce. Bruce. And I could look up, I could look up around the arena and I could see even the last row of people just going crazy. <laughs> and and he was ducking down and that, you know, if you've never been a place where there's 14, 15,000 people screaming in one direction, it's, it's absolutely something that brings chills to you. It's like, I, I'll never forget that feeling. And then I looked over at Bruce, which is like his guitar was touching my elbow. And I looked over at him and I looked up at the audience and I go, this guy next to me has more power than anybody I've ever met. And then I thought of, 
the people around the planet that know his music, you know, the, the Jersey stuff, the heartbreak, the hope, the loss, uh, the small town life, the redemption. And, and it's this guy next to me. And then house lights go on, I mean, the, the stage lights go on and he takes three steps up and he runs out and it was, you know, it's another amazing Springsteen show. But I had chills with that experience. And I, I, I didn't know what to do with that exactly, but I knew, you know, after graduation, I actually went to Europe with this tour for a while, but I got into commercial real estate for about 12 years. Okay. And then when I got back to music as, as a profession, I, that whole thing came back to me of the power, the power of music, the power of Springsteen for me. And these days, you know, if it's Lil Wayne or Beyonce or, uh, or, or Beethoven or whatever it is, I'm so glad I have that in my life. And I'm so glad other people have that in my life. Because for me, that's, that's raw power. That's what I try to think about when I go to one of my artist shows. I try to think about what that music is doing for all these people. And God knows, Mike, this world needs more of that. They need more of that good, loving power and hope that I get through music. And I, I know a lot of other people do. Absolutely. Myself included. Where'd real estate come into the picture? I don't know that we talked about this before. I sort of assumed that you left college and you were like, okay, let's start a management company. I, I didn't yeah, know about I, the real I, estate. No, piece. no, no. I, I, I graduated Notre Dame in 1981 with a degree in economics. And I was going to, I was going to take over the world, you know, in the music world, I mean, because I just did Springsteen. I flew over to London with Barry Bell sitting next to me. And uh, Springsteen had a, a week of shows, I think five shows at Wembley Arena. And Barry says, just, just come hang out with us. So I would hang out, meet everybody at the hotel, go to the shows, have passes and all that stuff. And, and I got to spend the week with, with Bruce Springsteen and his band like driving over in the van. That's insane. Yeah, it's, it's weird, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, just, just, to, just to make it a little bit more insane and freak you out a little bit, like midweek, there was, on the other side of the hotel lobby, there was all these crazy African-American kind of, you know, big, big colors and people and all this stuff going on. And then, I looked over there and there was a little guy in the middle and I go, Oh my God, that's Prince. Oh wow. Prince was doing a club tour of London. And so I took a day off from Springsteen. I saw Prince at a club, like about a five or 600 capacity club. And he was the last of three acts. There's three, three acts opening up for him. And I think Prince had a big buzz, but I don't think a lot of people saw them. And the acts were like rock and roll and punk and ska and just like really big, loud people. And then Prince came on and completely, completely blew everybody away. Kind of changed my life forever. So anyway, I was going to, you know, after spending time with Springsteen and Prince in the same room, uh, the, ho the same hotel, I was just going to go to New York City and take over. But this is pre-internet. So beside Springsteen's booking agent... And a couple other people. I really didn't know people in the industry. Sure. And you can't just go online and find out, you know, who needs interns and all that stuff. You had to do. So I sent out resumes and 
you know, there was some really crappy internships available, which I should have taken, but I didn't. So, but I wanted to be in New York City. So I wanted to move to New York City and be in the music business. So the only job I could get, which was fine, because it was a job, was selling Wrangler jeans. So I got a job selling Wrangler jeans and they paid me a salary and I worked in the Empire State Building. And everybody around me were these unbelievably funny, smart, New York, Jewish salesmen. And I'm this Catholic guy from Notre Dame. And I, they, just, they just took me in. And they said, you got to go into the accounts and you say, I'm the only goyim in the shmata business. And they're going to love you. <laughs> so, and I didn't know what that meant or anything. So I moved to New York City and I went to my little account selling my Wrangler blue jeans. And I hated it, but I learned. I learned a lot. And then they moved me up to Boston. And then I decided to get out of the shmata business and into the real estate business. So that was 12 years. I, I was... I was a broker and I was buying some properties and converting some properties and, you know, selling some properties. And then that's what got me. One of my clients was Mike Treese from Newberry Comics and they were looking for some space. And Mike and I were good friends and, you know, we used to see each other all the time at shows and he used to buy me beer and we had a great, great, great friendship. And then, when I found an artist, Ellis Paul, I said, Mike, you know, I actually had a dream about starting a record label and I want to do it with this guy, Ellis Paul. And Mike says, okay, play the music. So I was taking Mike down south of Boston to show him some properties. And I played a little Ellis Paul cassette and Mike says, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, he's good. I'll start the label with you. So there I was, you know, I had a dream about starting a record label. I played a little cassette for Mike Treese from Newberry Comics, who has funds, intelligence, knows everybody. They have retail stores, and he's a friend. So we started a record label in the early 90s. And really soon after that, I got out of commercial real estate, where I was wearing suits and making money to wearing jeans and not that. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, it, you know, I've been full-time music making money on the music and managing artists since early nineties. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's the ride. So from management into academia, like how did that happen? Well, Berkeley would invite me in to speak on panels or classrooms things. And, and I liked it. I, I liked speaking. You know, I was always nervous because when you're in the music business and I had some friends at schools and they would ask me to come in to talk about what I do. And I got really nervous about speaking in front of people. And then I, I realized that the attitude I had to put in my head is that I'm the world's expert at one thing. And that's me, Ralph, and my business. Like, I, no one knows my business more than me. And if I could speak out of that little part of the, the pie, right, there's a little slice of music industry called Ralph Jacketing Management. And if I could speak from what I learned from that, I'm good. So that's what I would do. I'd go to Berkeley and talk about my experience, mostly in the folk and acoustic world and songwriters. And, and, I, and I loved it. I loved that experience of talking because I could kind of see – what needs to land on a college kid or a high school kid or a kid thinking of this and that. And I, I became pretty good at it. So eventually 
I went to a friend, Jeff Dornfield, who managed the group Boston for a while. And I said, Jeff, you know, I, I, if, if you ever need somebody in your department, you know, let me know, because I, I would love to teach. So Don Gorder, who was the chair of our music business management department, he brought me in once to talk to his class, a couple times, but once in particular to talk to his class. And there was probably 24 people in a circle, and I was talking about me and management and the music business according to what I see in the music business. And, and I, was, I was coming up with these stories and having a great time. And I looked at Don, and Don was like there like taking notes. And I go, oh, my God, this could be like a job interview. <laughs> I, I know Don, and I love Don, but this could be him seeing if I can speak in front of a classroom. And then a little while later, he said, Ralph, we've, we, have a, we have a position that's opening up, and we would like to consider you for it. And that was 2013. So this is my, I'm going on my eighth year of teaching. Wow. And I love it. I, I really love it, Mike. Very rewarding. Yeah, I would imagine in much the same way when I come and speak to your class, like I'm impacted by the fact that this is a different generation of people with, you know, some different ideals and some different knowledge bases kind of listening to me. I mean, as much as they're listening to me, I'm listening to them and yeah. like getting energy from them and, and figuring out what they're about. It, it feels like it's a mutual system of, of rewarding. And I would imagine that you get a lot out of interacting with teenagers and young people that are not your kids every, you know, every day. Like what, what's yeah. these, you know, well, the thing is that my kids don't listen to me, you know, we don't listen <laughs> to our parents, but my students do, you know, and because my career, I work with artists that are on the road and they work hard and it's a DIY kind of world that I'm from. It's folk and acoustic and coffee houses and indie bands and things like that. And so I never had the benefit of managing an Aerosmith or a Beyonce or something like that. So I had to hustle and it just brought me back. Like I, my first career goal was to become a professional basketball player. And I was the littlest, whitest, scariest guy. I was afraid of everything growing up, but I wanted to be a professional basketball player. So in order to get over being white and scared and small, I had to be fearless. And I had to be foolish and I had to will myself that I would be a great basketball player. And, and I kind of had to do that for music too, because no one cared about our artists. You know, as Mike Dries would say, nobody cares about Ellis Paul. We were releasing a record and he says, nobody cares about Ellis Paul. And so my, my goal is I want people to care about, Livington Taylor and Rebecca Lobby and Ellis Paul and all these people I work with and have worked with, but they don't need, we don't need more music. We don't need more artists. So in order for people to interact with my artists, they need to fall in love with my artists somehow. And sometimes that's through me. So they have to buy me first before they buy my artists. You know, they, I had to open the door, but I had to open up the door to myself, you know, to, to, to have these relationships first. So that was a whole different trip to itself. And it's, it's, made, me, it's, it's made me a decent manager, 
you know. It's like I, yeah. So, how how do you manage expectations? Like right before I talked to you, I was talking to um, a former intern of mine who's you know twenty two, twenty three years old, and he's trying to get into management A and R, and he's talking about artists and artists, particularly nowadays, where like you can be popular on social media, thinks like all you have to do is flick a switch and then the money comes raining in out of a helicopter or whatever. How do you manage the expectations of artists to let them know that like, hey, look, we're not going to be booking thousand seaters or 3000 seaters for you right away. Like, you know, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. And it's also an uphill climb. Like, because I feel like being a manager, particularly for people who are creative, requires also being like, a therapist or a psychologist sometimes. Well, well you know, Mike, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because for me and my artists, I haven't worked with a lot of artists that have good relationships with their fathers. And so, you know, my job at Berkeley is, is to be a professor, but I'm also, I'm also a dad. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a father figure in there sometimes. And then when I manage artists, I don't want to be a father figure. I want to be a manager. And if they have father issues, it's really hard to get over that because that means authority. And that means I'm telling them what to do. And they, they're not musicians to be told what to do. They want to be free and they want to do this and that. So, but listen, I, I'm, the older I get, the more cranky I am. And that's good. You know, I used to like everybody and trust everybody. And now... I'm a happy, cranky guy. So when I talk to my students or when I talk to young artists, I go, why are you doing this? Why music? And I do that to my class too. I go around, like I go to my, my, my students and I go, why music? And they go, what? I go, why music? And I get, because I love it, because it's the only thing I could do. Uh, I love the rock. I'm not good at anything else. I go, great. All these are right answers. But it's not the, the answer I'm listening for. And I say, I'm listening for someone to say, because that's how I'm going to serve. I, I don't want to work with any artists that in the back of their mind, they're not here to serve. And it's hard when you're young to think that. When you're young, you want money, you want fame. You want material things. You want, you want to get laid. Right, you want exactly. Let's stuff. say you want girls or women or men or both. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, 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 that, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, right. I, I, was, I, I was the same way. But I'm not that same person now. So I want to work with people. Like, why are you doing this? Why, why are you doing this? And I, I try to drill deep about that, you know. And, and if that answer is not answered in a really heartfelt way, like a mission statement, I can't waste time with people. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not here to grow my management company. I'm here to tell some truth. And, you know, I said, I, I, I want to I work with artists that have a focus of making this planet a little bit better through their music and through their experience and through their, uh, who they are. And I look at somebody like, you know, <clears throat> let's talk about Springsteen, of what he's done to my life. You know, he has no idea, you know, it's Bruce Springsteen. But, you know, how, how his 
example and how his shows and his music and his book, what is what he, he's done to my life. And I want, I want musicians like that. And if they don't have that in them, then hopefully, what are you here to do? Who are you here to serve? Maybe they think about that a little. Because I, you know, as I said, music is precious. Agreed. And I, I don't, I don't want to waste anybody's time. You know, I want to work with artists, and I want people. I, you know, don't waste my time. If, if you want to do great things, and and there's a lot of artists that do, you know. But just because you want to make the world a better place, it doesn't mean you should do it through your music. I agree with that. Also, did you always like? Did you always have that sense of purpose in your head? Were you always like trying to figure out ways that you could make the world a better place? Like, because I feel like a lot of kids, and it's nobody's fault. Like, it's just kind of the myopia of being a nineteen or twenty-year-old. There's so much shit that you want to do. You're just like, oh, like I don't have a purpose. So I, 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 I'm curious as to like when you were a teenager, when you were a young adult, did you actually have in your head like, I want something that I do to contribute to the world? Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to be out of Allentown. And I loved my hometown. But I started to uh, promote concerts in, in high school. And that was like, it was the list I gave you. Farner, Kiss, Foghat, Rush, Jolly Parton, Hall & Oates. Jane, uh, Livingston Taylor, Kansas, all these 70s things. I was promoting them with this group I was in, uh, a student government group. And so I would see like Kiss and Foghat and their buses coming in, rocking my little town and going to the next town. And I go, oh, that's exactly what I want. What a great way to see the world and to do this and do that. So that, that was kind of on my mind. And I, I, I wasn't going to be a rock star, but I wanted somehow to be part of that energy where you, you don't have to be at a desk. And, you know, you could, you could be bigger than your hometown. And then in high school, <clears throat> I, worked, I worked at this, the place I went to school and I went to church called St. Thomas More. And I was a janitor in the afternoon. And then the summers I would paint the, the buildings and all that kind of stuff. And I worked for a priest who was uh, named Monsignor Call, and he was the head of the Catholic Relief Services, a really big organization. And if he wasn't a, a Monsignor at our church, he would be a CEO of a big company. He was a powerful guy. And he partnered with Mother Teresa from Calcutta, India. So they partnered together and, and they, with the Catholic Relief Services. So the funds, the, the exposure, the investment, the blankets, the towels, the food sources that was distributed around the world, a lot of that was through the Catholic Relief Services. So when Mother Teresa won the Nobel Prize, she came to America to go to Washington and Philadelphia. And before that, because Monsignor Call was in our little church in Allentown, he invited her to Allentown. So you know, it was, it was amazing. So that was a, that was a time where, you know, time and Newsweek had her picture saying a living saint and she was a living saint. And she was like the most popular lady die and princess die. And, yeah, and Mother, Teresa. Um, Mother Teresa were like the biggest people. In, on yeah. the planet. So she comes to our little church and it was mobbed and it was, you know, you couldn't get near the church. 
And I was able to get in the church and I was able to shake her hand and meet her. And she walked right in front of me. And it was like, a, it was, it was kind of a, I let it be a big deal. And then the next day we, we took our little school buses down to Philadelphia. It was called Veterans Stadium. It's where the Eagles played. Right. And they had a, like a celebration party mass for Mother Teresa. And instead of being right next to Mother Teresa, I was way, way up in the, in the, in the nosebleed sections of this big football stadium. And when she came in, it was 65,000 people got up and screamed and yelled and clapped. And she was, there was about 25 priests. And then at the end, she was there, simple woman, same outfit as the day before, sandals and a little sweater. And she walks up, processes up, and she sits down in the front row. And they were going to have a mass for her. And it was a sustained applause for probably 20 minutes. It took her like 15 minutes to get up. She was, sure. and it was, and then it was just, it was, I've never seen anything like it. And again, I broke out in chills, a lot like the Springsteen feeling. And, and I, I took a picture of her and I have the picture in my house here. And I was thinking she, she was old and she had a little gray sweater that had little moth holes in and her sandals were just old, old sandals. And, she didn't have a website. She doesn't have a hit song. She's not in any movies. She didn't even have a book out. She had nothing. She is all she had is a faith that was burning. And she just wanted to serve. She just wanted to serve. And she did. And how many people on this planet that have nothing to do with the arts can walk into a stadium and have 65,000 people give them a standing ovation when you're 80 years old, you know, it was, it was something. So that's, that was kind of in my DNA in high school, you know, it was in high school when I, when I did all that stuff. So between mother Teresa first and then Springsteen, I've been baptized by two of the biggest and best. And so I know their power. I know what I study people that have successful careers. And that power that both of them have and where that power comes from, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with that. God knows we need that in this, this world now. It is, it's pretty fascinating when you think of, you know, I would compare that these days to somebody like, you know, Barack or Michelle Obama walking into whatever, walking onto like, you know, into Harvard Stadium or something like that and just having everybody go completely nuts, like, yeah, you know, like that power, you know, definitely sh- people who have that power should harness it and use it for good. Not everybody does, unfortunately. But I, I do think that that's that's a wonderful thing, especially if you don't let the the fact that you have the ability to do that corrupt you. So, right. Yeah, right. And and maneuvering that is just difficult because. You know, fame will kill you if you can't yes. deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I try to, I try to talk about that power in terms of service. So Beyonce is really powerful because she serves a lot of people with her music. So absolutely. is Barack. You know, so, so you know, and it's like 
there's there's fame. Donald Trump's famous, but there's service. Mother Teresa serves, Springsteen serves, Barack serves. And it's like I, I like the service part. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The service part has has you know, it it kind of is out of the ego. And I'm not saying that ego is a bad thing, but I'm not worried about serving to get a bigger house or a fancier car. I'm here to kind of like do as much good as possible. And you could do a lot of good through music. And because I can't make the music myself, I try to work with artists that are doing a lot of good with their music. So in that, in that vein, you are performing in active service by teaching and letting these young people know about your experiences. What is the thing that you like enjoy most about being an educator or is that the thing that you enjoy most about being an educator? I, I think it's because I'm, you know, God bless Berkeley college of music. They, they hire me to teach what I know. So I'm not there to say, open up the book to chapter two. Like, you know, I'm not here to, I'm, I'm here to talk about real things in the music business. And we do talk about fame. We talk, talk about service or why you're doing this. But then, you know, connect the dots. If you have the best song in the world, it probably won't get heard. You know, I, I know lots of artists with amazing songs. They will never get heard. Absolutely, and, and then those those artists that do have songs that get heard, what you know, how much luck is involved, how much timing's involved, how much it's really hard. So what I like to do is I like to set off sparks, and I've had enough experience with success and failure and people that have succeeded in failures, so I could tell stories, and you know, me and most of the students that I have, you know, attention's a tough thing to have. <laughs> and uh, in, in here in the music business, Michael, really? Yeah. And, and I, I teach the way that worked for me. So, and it's like, you know, what works for me is stories. Stories I can remember. And inspiring stories. Or amazing stories. So I, I have a collection of stories that I bring out and kind of try to educate through stories and that are real life stories. And I'm always looking for stories. As like your life has so many stories, Mike. So when you come to Berkeley and talk about your upbringing, your first job, you know, your loud cat, all that stuff. <laughs> it's, it's like I bring you in and you're the world's expert at your life. So it's the truth. And you know it. And you can speak it better than anybody with with power, force, humor, and, and honesty. So I try to put all that together when I when I teach. Do you how do you then apply that as because your kids are pretty much just a little bit older than your students are. Yeah. Like how do you I mean, apply that same sort of knowledge base, because I do think that being an educator is intentionally or not a way of being kind of like an adjunct parent. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? At the very least, like an influential figure in much the same way a parent should be an influential figure. 
So I guess just sort of, you know, as a parent of two younger people, what, you know, what are you kind of cross applying in terms of being able to, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I tell my students that I know your species, you know, (laughs) it's like, and it's, it's so amazing. Like, you know, my, my kids do nothing but roll their eyes and help me out with tech and, and, you know, I'm just an old guy to them. And I, I learn enough about my kids and my kids' friends and what they're into. And it serves me when I talk to my students. And when I talk to my students, I learn more, a lot about them. So I can, I can meet my kids at a different level too. And I'm not trying to be young, hip and cool, but I'm, I'm also trying to understand that people are anxious. People are afraid. People are doing all kinds of things that it was different than when I was 20 years old. So I think it's really important to know your audience. And I love, you know, I, I love my audience. I love 20 year old students. I love college students. And so, you know, a little bit about this is when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a priest. You know, I was an altar boy and I, I was, I had great priests like that's Monsignor Call and others that I work with and four and they were really inspiring men and then so that was that was my like first thing i thought wow and i would go to a, like a church service and i go i could do better than that and <laughs> it's such like an interesting gonna, thing to to feel like competitive about oh yeah yeah of course <laughs> I, I, like well I, I i would i would go to i would go to church and i'd be like ah it's just like there's other ways to make this better it's like going to a show and you sit there at the show and says, man, they could, they could do better than that. Mm-hmm. If the guy could just look up at the audience and say thank you once or introduce the band or do different things. So I'm always thinking that way. But, you know, that's I thought as a little boy that I would my calling would be a priest. Wow. And then I fell in love with the not girls. I fell in love with kids. <laughs> I, lo- I loved kids first. And I thought, like, I can't be a priest and have kids. And then I fell in love with girls, and I was like, game over. Right. Game over. Yeah, I'll, be a, I'll be a professional basketball player or something, yeah. you know. How do you think that you'd – well, first of all, I mean, do you think that – this is sort of a leading question – that your kids are facing a very unique array of struggles during this time in particular because the world is in a place that – I mean, this is unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, my son graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology and he was promised a job at an ad agency. So he graduated, moved home and he found out that the ad agency lost a client. So uh, that job disappeared. And he went out in the job market and he was hustling, hustling, hustling. And he's a photographer. He's a designer, is doing lots of stuff. And then he got a job for Arnold Advertising, a big company in town here. And it took him a little while, but he has a he has a really solid job. So he goes downtown and, you know, buys his clothes and he goes to the office. And then three months later, the office is closed. So, you know, you're starting in an ad agency. You're starting in real life, in real world, in a big company. And you have to do it virtually. And it's, it's been tough, but it is what it is. And then my, my daughter graduated Smith College this year, and she was, you know, Nancy Pelosi was going to speak at the graduation. So we were really excited to go out there and, 
And then we were in, you know, ends up on my back deck watching uh, Nancy Pelosi and her classmates on Zoom. Right. And it is what it is, just like my Berkeley students. So the thing about this is we're all in the same situation, you know. And I don't mean just in America. I mean, like, in Africa and Brazil and, you know, Alaska and Norway. We're all dealing with this stuff. We're dealing with a political crisis racial crisis we're dealing with a pandemic and you know i remember when obama took office the economy was in the shits and his the messaging was let's take advantage of a perfectly good crisis this is our time this is our time you know it's it's just amazing I just went, uh, coming back from visiting my mom, I saw about three or four restaurants, a church, and two bars that had renovation signs. They're renovating. I go, wow, this is the time you renovate your restaurant. This is the time to renovate the church or the school or something because the buildings are closed. Right. When, when are these things closed? Never. Right. You, you're not going to get that kind of opportunity. Right. So like they're taking advantage of a perfectly good crisis. That means they have the funds, they're gonna stay in business and they're healthy. This is a tough time for a lot of people. So when I have my 20 students on Zoom here, I, and they're from all over the world, I like to find out where they're at, who they're living with, how they're doing. And it's really important. I wanna connect with them like I would as a father, you know? and I. It's like these students, I love them. I love them as a father. They're not my kids, but I, I really want the best of them. I, I could see, you know, I, I, I really want the best for them. And these are, these are tough times. So I have to adjust a lot of things. I'm a little bit more gentle on myself and my students during this time. And we're making it up, Mike, as you know, we're just making this up. Yeah, there's no uh, rule book, no directions for any of this stuff. Yeah, and I'm I'm really really trying to be positive. I'm really trying to be positive. It's not easy. And I'm, it's not easy, brother. And uh, you know, one thing I had to do is I had to call up and break break up with my girlfriend, which is Rachel Maddow. Not really my girlfriend. But <laughs> nine o'clock at night, I'm there with Rachel, and I'm 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 in the war room, and I'm ready to go. Rachel, tell me where to go. And I just I. I I don't watch television anymore. I stopped it's my too much. television. It's too much. You know, I, I do know the news and I read newspapers, but I need to take care of myself. I need to take care of myself. And, and what um, do they, there's a term for it. Not so much uh, doom television, scrolling. doom scrolling. Yes. Which I find myself doing from time to time. It's yeah. kind of hard to avoid, but it really does. Like there's a fine line between wanting to be informed and wanting to be an activist and knowing when being over-informed is taking a literal toll on your health. Yeah. Well, you know, last Thursday, John Lewis's funeral, who's an American hero. And I, I wanted to talk about that. And this is a man that was beaten by chains and bats and spit on and all that stuff. And physically hurt many times. He was arrested starting at the age 21, 40 times. And then he got into Congress and he was arrested five times after that. 
And everybody that talks about him talks about his joy, about his positivity. And I don't know how you could forgive that much. I don't know how you could keep going. You know, I, I do know. I do know. I do know where that power comes from. But that's, it's hard. And that, that's, that's, that's deep, that's deep love of, of people and to serve. And you mix that with a little spirituality. You mix that with a lot of hope and not letting the forces of darkness get you. And so like that lesson is more important to my Berkeley students than talking about XYZ in the music business. It has everything to do with the music business because the music business is really hard and you will get metaphorically beaten up and spit on. And how do you survive? You know, those people that survive at the top level, they're tough. Yeah, you have to be. They're tough. They're tough people. You have so, to be. Um, I mean, stuff doesn't come easy for most people. It's, it's interesting because, you know, in regards to John Lewis, like I didn't know a ton about him before he got ill. Yeah. And I actually just ordered his uh, memoir and started reading it this past weekend. And just the fact that he did, you know, and a lot of our ancestor di ancestors did endure so much and still kept, still were hopeful. I think that to me is one of the, the things that is getting me through this. Just kind of the knowledge that, look, you know, people have been through as bad and worse and they came out on the other side and they didn't live the rest of their lives consumed by hate or, you know, anger or bitterness yeah. or whatever it is. They're heroes to me, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. They're heroes to me. And, you know, the front page, I mean, uh, a full page ad in, I think, the Washington Post or New York Times this morning had a picture of an African-American woman. She goes, uh, there's a big headline that says, very few, very few people, there, there's times where people don't know I'm a police officer, but everybody knows I'm black all the time. And it, it really made me think, right? And I don't know what it's like to be a black man in America. But for that class, I brought in my friend Frizzy, who's a rapper from Pittsburgh, just beautiful guy. And I, you know, I called him in the morning. I said, listen, I'm going to be talking about John Lewis. And I, I could do a decent job, but I'm not walking in your shoes. And would you mind coming in to talk a little bit? And he was brilliant. He was brilliant, you know. And I think these are really important discussions, Mike. You know, I think they're really important discussions. And, you know, until you know a black person, a gay person, a trans person, an ex-junkie, an ex-addict, you know, somebody that spent decades in jail. And, and until you talk with them and understand them or read their stories, you have no idea. And, you know, when I go back to my hometown, and I, in, in hometowns in general, people that don't leave their hometown are mostly conservative. People that move and go around and travel around, they, their mind opens up a little. And, you know, I, we have to love everybody. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes. But man, John Lewis, he's, you know, let's, let's, let's give him some props. 
yeah. for the rest of our lives, right? Yeah, and you just hit on something that I've been trying to explain to people, and you said it so much more eloquently than I ever could. If you don't leave your immediate area, the only people that you have as reference points are the people that are in your area, so you don't get to come into contact with people who are not like you. And I think once you get out of that bubble, particularly if it's a suburban or a rural bubble, the world just like opens up and you're like, oh, well, here are, here are strong independent women. Here are mm. people of, of color. Here are mm. disabled people. Here are queer people. Here are trans people. And you know what? Maybe the people in my hometown or the images that I'm getting through the media say that I should be afraid of these people, but these people are fucking cool and they're people just like me and they deserve respect. So, you know, calling back to what you said about people who don't leave their towns being conservative, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that people should somehow make an effort, whether it's going to college somewhere else or taking trips and vacations to other places and really like having conversations with people people should make more of an effort to get out of their, you know, to get out of their zones, their comfort zones. And, you know, if you push yourself subtly or, or, or openly to step out of your comfort zone, your life will be a lot better for it. Your worldview will be a lot better for it. But it's hard, Mike, you know, because you grow up and you have your buddies. And you have your buddies maybe in grade school, high school, you know, and, you, and you're, you're buddies, you stick around. And if you're staying in that hometown, you're with your buddies. Yeah. And it doesn't, I don't know, I just think we have to, we have to change as a species because what's going on is not working. And not at all. Despite two terms of Obama, we're finding out that we, we have to do a lot of work. You know, my, my mentor, <clears throat> one of the biggest influences on my life is a guy named Tim Collins, who managed the group Aerosmith. And he took me in and we started this Boston managers group 25, 26 years ago. And my, he was an expert and I was the beginner. It was a beautiful kind of partnership where I learned a lot from him. And one of the things he said, he had to get himself sober and he had to get Aerosmith sober. He is, he's a big recovery advocate. He said, there's a spiritual solution to any problem. And I look at that. Where, where's the spiritual solution to all these problems? You know, where, where is that? And I don't mean religion. I mean spiritual. I mean love, light. And um, at my best, I'm centered and I focus on that. But most of the time, I'm just fighting all those wars and I'm in the war room and I have an election coming up and, you know, I had to fight for my artists and I had to fight for this. And, you know, it's just it's crazy time. Yeah. So when you're fighting, cause, because fighting is exhausting, like what do you do to practice self-care? That's funny. You know, I fight because I was a little white guy that wanted to play basketball. In <laughs> order to be on that, that court, I had to be hyper-aggressive and I had to be foolish and fearless. So I, I became not afraid of, of anyone because I had to put myself in a mindset. So I do a lot now because I, I need to take time off. I stopped watching television. I have stopped talking to some people in my life that I need a break from. I, I try not to let, you know, 
when 9-11 happened, I talked to a friend of mine who was a psychic. He's a master of divinity. He's a PhD and he's a psychic. He's a, like amazing guy. And he said a year before 9-11 happened, he's a shaman too, a highly evolved spiritual being. He says a year before 9-11, shamans from all over the planet knew there was going to be some kind of a shift, an energetic shift on the planet. So we've been meditating and praying. And this is the way my friend talks, you know, I go like, oh, you know, and I live in Cambridge, so this is normal. So, okay. uh, and, and I, you know, he, and he, we talked through 9-11 and I saw him a week or two after Trump was elected. And I go, okay, Ray, I'm going to ask you the same question. What's going on? And his response with, with this election was the same with 9-11, that forces of good, forces that bring light, and love will always be attacked by darkness. And darkness is evil. Darkness is hate. Darkness is fear. And when he said that, it became so simple that those people that bring light will be attacked by darkness. And it was so simple. And I go, oh, that's great. I, that, okay, but what happens? What happens? Right. And he goes, he goes, light wins. Love will always win at the end. And that's my credo. You know, that's my manifesto. So my self-care is taking the time to take care of myself first. And, you know, growing up as a little Catholic guy, I always, you know, you got to love others and this and that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, <laughs> hey, I, I, I grew up Catholic too, Ralph. I know the deal. Right. Okay, so it was what I love people and stuff. Yeah. But nowhere did I hear take care of myself first. Right. And 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 Tim Tim the Aerosmith manager says, you know, Ralph, there's a reason why you put the oxygen mask on yourself before the kids on the plane. There's a reason for that. You gotta take care of yourself first before you do anything. So, you know, I can't teach or I can't manage if I don't have sleep or if I'm scattered or if I'm hungover, or if I'm not focused. So I really need to, I need to take care of myself just, you know, to be the best Ralph. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of five-year plans left. And I want to be the best Ralph. You know, I really want to be the best person I can be. Sure. And that means take care of myself in whatever, whatever way it is. And, you know, being around people like you help. Thank you. Thank you. you know, you're you're an inspiring guy. You're an important person, and you're honest. You're about honest about who you are, and what you've been through. And boy, that's 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 an important message, Mike. You know, you know. I think it's important to, and this is something that I had to learn through experience. When you are the true ver truest version of yourself, you can be. It's so freeing. Like I spent so much time not liking who I was and trying to be somebody else and being secretive about parts mm -hmm. of me. I like lost years or missed years or whatever it is. Now it's kind of like, Oh, this is how you live your best life. You put yourself forward and you know, look, I mean, if, if the things that I'm honest about come back and bite me in the ass, that's fine. 
But knowing that you're putting things out in the world, that could potentially come back to you in one way that people may try to use against you is fine. And it's better than keeping all of this stuff inside and hoping that somebody doesn't find out. Right on. You know, it's, it, it, it just seems like the, it's again, like emotionally freeing. Yeah. You know, you know, my, my, my partner, Vicky, when I, when I met her, her, her group from Worcester Mass were probably about 12 gay men. And that was her best friend. And, you know, over 15 years or so, we go on vacation and trips and uh, parties and all that stuff with this group. And it's a bigger group. And, and I've heard the coming out story from almost every single one of them. And they spoke just like you about finally to be honest with who you are. And I couldn't imagine, I can't put myself in those moccasins of what it must be like to live a life trying to be this in, 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 on a daily basis, you know, and, and, and just trying to be that or not let the secret get out. You know, I, I, one Thanksgiving, I was making a meal when my kids were here. And I had these Trader Joe's olives in a little plastic thing. And I was ripping the little plastic open to get the, at the olives and something happened and my tooth fell out. It was like, dude, it was a tooth fall. Exactly. And it was just tired. It was a tired tooth that just like, boom, I'm out of here. <laughs> and, and I looked down and I saw my tooth and I go, wow. And I go, hey kids. And they both were in the kitchen and I go, think that's missing here. And they go, what happened? And they, I told them what happened. They go, dad you can't go to Berkeley looking like that. And I, and then, you know, here I am, the dad, the wise dad. And I go, oh, geez, you're right. And then my son says, it looks like you got in a fight and lost. <laughs> and, and, and what's worse, and my, my beautiful supportive daughter says, it looks like you're a meth addict. I'm like, oh, oh geez. So, so I, I, you know, what do you do? It's going to be Thanksgiving. So I call my dentist left a message and I go, yes, it is an emergency. And I felt weird and it looked weird. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking, I have four days before I had to teach at Berkeley. You know, I'm, I'm panicked because I, it, it looks really weird. So the day before I was going to teach at Berkeley, I went to my dentist and he says, come on in and we'll put a little cap on it. And it's a temporary cap until we get the real thing. And I go, great. And he kind of put it in there and he goes, don't eat apples or taffy or anything like that. And I said, how long is it going to last? And he goes, it will last until it falls out, but it will fall out. Like, ah. So I was fine, ready to go to Berkeley, go to Berkeley. Before the class, I had a, a blueberry muffin, biting the muffin, the little thing fell out. So I go, okay, I got to deal with this. And, and I was, it was really in my head. It was like being a little kid and having a pimple on your nose. Like right. Everybody Everybody's looking at the pimple. about the pimple. Yeah. Everybody. So I go into the classroom. I teach, the, I teach and I was, I was embarrassed. I was like, I was feeling all this stuff that I felt like in high school. Right. And then I, I, I did the whole class. And the class is an hour and 15 minutes long. An hour and 45 minutes into it, I said, okay, everybody close your eyes. And then I said, did anybody notice anything different about me? And somebody says, you got a new blue shirt? And I go, no. Anything else? Go, no. 
And I said, open your eyes. And I go, and I had this thing that said, oh, what happened? What happened? And I go, I'll tell you what happened. For four days straight, all you were in my head thinking that you're going to think I'm a meth addict or I got in a fight or whatever you're going to think. And I haven't felt that since I was in high school. And it was really hard to go through. So it was like that kind of a thing where the tricks that we could play with ourselves and how important it is, like what we think of ourselves and what what's the tape in our head that plays all the time. And damn, did they play all the time, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, you know, the record skips in the same spot. Is it because I'm a little white guy? Is it because I don't know this? Is it because my father wasn't this? You know, the record always skips. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm trying to study that where it skips. And maybe not pay so much attention to the voices in your head. Yeah. That, you know, that are trying to, I mean, I'm not sure what, the, to this day, I'm not sure what they're trying to do but that are just, you know, that are louder than reality. Yeah. And, and, you know, Mike, I got to be honest with you. That's the one thing I like about being 60 years old is, you know, after a while, you really don't care. I really don't care. I want to get to that point, Ralph. You know, <laughs> just like, I don't care. You know, think of what you want. I, you know, this is who I am. Right. I know who I am, you know. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm partially there, but I want to get like totally there. I mean, not to 60 yet, because, you know, I got some time to go before I get there. Take some time. But to the, yeah. to the I don't care point. Yeah. Or to well, the you, uh, people's opinions don't a, matter to me. You're on the way of becoming a little Buddha. Just be careful <laughs> with the teeth, Mike. Just be careful with the teeth. I wasn't ready for the tooth thing. So I mean, my teeth, teeth, these are all false. And even now, like, my, I have some, my bottom teeth are summer teeth. Some go this way, some go that way. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it, it is, I'm very self-conscious about it to the point where, like, when I had the gap up top, I wouldn't smile for pictures. Mm. You know, I would talk without showing my teeth, which I can still do, I guess. It, it just, yeah, it fucks with your self-esteem. Yeah. So. Yeah. You um, know, I was, I, was, I was in the gym telling that story about my teeth and about how obsessed I was with the way I looked to a guy in the gym that works out. And he has a prosthetic leg. And... While I was, while the tapes were playing in my head, I thought of this guy and he always wears shorts, even in the middle of the winter. And you could see the, the prosthetic leg. And I, I told him, I said, like, you really inspired me that I don't care what people think. And I'm so, I'm so glad that an example like you, and he says, I had to do this because I don't want to hide. I don't want to hide what I have or what I don't have. Right. And like, there's heroes everywhere that have worked this stuff out, you know? You know, we live in a world that unfortunately places a lot of value on aesthetics. And, you know, as someone who, I mean, look, even like when I first started working, when I was in like junior high and high school, like I would have panic attacks before I had to like change in the gym, you know, because you feel like everybody's looking at you. So, you know, getting over all that is a process, but you realize at some point, look, everybody's got, everybody's unique. Like some pe- people have imperfections, you know, you just got to kind of be, be at peace with yourself. And I'm not there yet, but 
you know, it's a process. Like the first step is kind of recognizing it. And then from there, you just hopefully come to terms with it. And then it's really important to, you know, when you're banging around people in life, I've met some really successful people and I've met some really amazing people. Mm-hmm. I, I, I used to go into high uh, maximum security prisons and do retreats. And twice I've done this. For, what sort uh, of retreats? It's a, it's a, a Christian, it's, just, it's called a Crucio. And Thursday to Sunday, you're, you're in there at seven in the morning till about 11 at night with maximum security. And most of these people are lifers that will never get out. And, and you know something, Mike, I, most every single one of these inmates, and they're the biggest, toughest, strongest, tattooed up people, most every single person that I met had no father or father issues. Sure. And, I mean, um, I've got my share of those. And then part of this was at the end, you, when you say goodbye, there's a line of inmates and there's a line of people on the team and we, we give hugs to them. And you kind of go through the line, you give hugs. And there's nobody that's not crying. And it's really a powerful thing. And you know, there's, there's people that have done some really, really tough crimes that will never, ever, ever get out of prison. And they're, and they're massively big and strong and tough looking. And they're crying like a baby. And the, the minister that's inside the prison talked to us in advance. And he said, this is what's going to happen. And he says, these men have never been hugged by another man with, with love. And it's the most powerful moment of some of these guys' lives. And just, you know, so, you know, it's like that experience. And then a friend of mine who is a billionaire and has lots of things, all the, all the toys that billionaires have and talking to me about his problems, you know, about love and girls and family and all that stuff. And we're all in the same air. We're trying to figure out things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think just like leaving your hometown, experiencing other people's stories just because you have a billion dollars or more it doesn't mean you're going to be happy and just because you're in prison it doesn't mean you can't be free i think that's important i think we're all here to kind of learn these lessons right it is super important and imagine getting these lessons and then talking to students that want to be in the music business like that that blows my mind that i'm able to do this you know great yeah you paint it forward and bringing people like you in right as a guest speaker that's profoundly powerful it's it's it's, it's great i am also great paying thing. it forward yeah. I mean, you know you're an inspiration to me you know and and you are you know just like a kind pure like loving person like it makes me want to do these things so that's what I, it's about i appreciate that about you what it's about, brother. Likewise. Um, yeah. I, I just want to, when we spoke a long time ago, you, you mentioned fathers or, you know, I, I just, and I, I thought, is this one time when my father passed away, my father was a physicist and he was, worked at Bell Laboratories and then he was a professor at Lehigh University and 
And when he died, I, I did the eulogy. And I, I remember this one moment where my dad was a scientist, a brilliant man and a deacon in the Catholic church and all these things. And, you know, he wasn't cool. He wasn't hip. He wasn't an athlete. He wasn't all these things, but he was, you know, later on, just this brilliant, wonderful guy. But I remember once he had a little Volkswagen and we were driving somewhere and somebody came around and my father had to stop. And then the guy was out of his mind, angry. And he, he stopped right in front of my father. He was saying, I think he went to two, two fingers. Wow. And yeah, all, that's, all, that's, this, that's, all this anger. Right. And I go, dad, yell at him, yell at him. And he goes, give him the finger, do something, do react. And he goes, no, that's what he wants me to do. And there was so much wisdom in that. Right? Yeah. This guy was so angry and he wanted a reaction. And my father knew he wanted a reaction. And sometimes no reaction is the perfect reaction, you know? So these little bits of wisdom I, I, I take in and I try to learn in my life. So I think you and the show and your guests, I've been listening to some of these shows and there's, there's all these little bits of wisdom in there. I, I love it. I think it's I'm, really important. I'm picking them up too. Like this cool. is a learning thing for me. Right. And hopefully some of that reflects out to everybody else listening. That's the idea, brother. Thank you, Ralph, for uh, dropping some wisdom and sharing your knowledge and your passion with uh, the folks listening. You can find, I can't get my words out today, you can find Ralph Jackadine online. Uh, RalphJackadine.com is where you'll find information about his management company, and you can find him on Twitter at rjackadine. I've been spelling out all of this stuff over the past bunch of episodes, and I realize if you're listening to the episode, you can probably see the person's name. Uh, so I guess I don't need to do that anymore. Anyway, I've been uh, trying to promote a charity or a nonprofit or something uh, civic-minded at the end of every episode. And with the recent shooting of Jacob Blake, I would like to take a moment and talk about the Milwaukee Freedom Fund. Um, there are lots of folks protesting across the country, not just for Jacob Blake, but for the many uh, black victims of police brutality and violence uh, over the course of the past few months, years. And uh, I do want to spotlight Milwaukee and Kenosha because that's the area that uh, Jacob Blake was shot in. And um, that seems to be where the most feverish protesting is happening right now. So um, there's not a website. But you can email the folks at Milwaukee Freedom Fund at Milwaukee Freedom Fund at gmail.com. And uh, if you need uh, help with a ticket or reaching a lawyer or you know somebody who needs help with bail, uh, there is a form to fill out at bit.ly slash MFF arrest help. That is MFF arrest help. Bit.ly MF F arrest help. And uh, you can also call attorney Kimberly Motley at 704-763-5413 or 704-765-4887. If you'd like to know more about detoxicity, you can follow me online at It's Mike Joseph on Instagram, Tis Mike Joseph uh, on Twitter. 
I am kind of struggling with Facebook. I'm actually not sure if the detox page on Facebook is still up because I deactivated my Facebook account. Um, A, because Facebook is toxic, not to say Twitter isn't, but Facebook is toxic and uh, Mark Zuckerberg seems intent on uh, destroying America and the world. Um, So uh, I don't see myself coming back to Facebook anytime soon, but anything can happen. You never know. Um, If you have any questions about the show or you'd like to be a guest or you know somebody who'd be a good guest, you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. I wish you and yours continued safety and health. My name is Mike Joseph. I will catch you next time. Peace. Peace.